Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the very first episode of The Compliance Guy in 2024. I am so excited to be back after a uh, three-week hiatus and getting back into the groove. And as I was at the end of 2023 thinking about how do I want to start 2024 with the podcast, I got an email from this guy. And I was thinking to myself, holy crap, that's my first guest. That's who I want on the program. And sure enough, I reached out and said, Hey, you're a guy who deals with a lot of crazy stuff every single year. And you got your finger on the pulse for what's going on. So what do you think about being my very first guest of 2024? And he was like, yeah, all right, if I have to. (laughs) So with that said, I get to welcome my very good friend, David Zetter, uh, to the program. And, uh, David, it's good to see you. You're looking good. You're looking trim, tan, fit as always. You must've found a fountain of youth or a fountain of something, man. Cause right, John. Uh, I'm struggling here. <laughs> All right. So how are you, buddy? Uh, I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. How are you and the family? Everybody's wonderful. We uh, we got to take a little bit of a vacation. We had a really nice uh, holiday uh, season with the grandbabies and the kids. And uh, now it's time to go back to work so I could pay off the debt f- that my wife uh, accumulated for Christmas gifts. Yeah, I think we're all in that uh, situation. Yep. So, look, you know. One of the things that I wanted to get in and talk to you about, because I know this is the time of year where a lot of folks are starting to think about, you know, recertification, recredentialing, um, or they are bringing on new providers and they're trying to figure out how do I get them, you know, credentialed and how long are the processes taking and all these kind of things. So I figured we kind of break these down into some different conversations. and. I want to start first by asking you, you know, what are what are some of the big pitfalls that people found themselves trying to dig out of in 2023 when it came to credentialing and contracting? Because they're not the same thing, even though people were trying to use these terms interchangeably. Well, yeah. And credentialing, actually, credentialing is, um, you know, primary source verification and technically that is not what we do, but everybody calls it credentialing. What we do is provider enrollment. Credentialing is actually validating every aspect of somebody's CV and their historical uh, information from their entire career. Uh, and that's, you know, obtaining it straight from the horse's mouth. So, you know, education institutions have to be written, they have to write back and validate that the provider went to the school and so on. So that's what takes so long. 
And the biggest challenge that we found in the last three years is that, you know, with COVID, a lot of people that were doing this work aren't, are no longer doing that work. So you've got payers that are very short staffed. A lot of people went to remote jobs. You know, there were a million, millions of jobs created from COVID. And that created a lot of openings in existing job placements. And a lot of that was the insurers. And of course, they've got everybody also working remotely and they will for forever, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, they're getting rid of all their commercial office space and everything. So, you know, they know now that they don't have to supply computers, phones, make people do it from home, and they're using their own equipment most of the time now. So that is creating a huge issue. It is take, we used to be able to say it takes 90 days to get you credentialed uh, or enroll with most payers, but that's no longer the case. There are some that will get it done in 90 days, but not as many as there used to be. It's gonna mostly take up to six months now, and there are payers that will take longer than six months. So that's a huge challenge. Uh, the other, you know, the other biggest issue that we always find, and this has always been the issue, nobody has copies of contracts and fee schedules. Um, and that's part of the problem. Everybody thinks that credentialing doesn't include obtaining a fully executed copy of the, of the contract and copies of every fee schedule tied to that contract. I mean, let's face it, Sean, you and I are businessmen you know you can't run a business if you don't know what you're supposed to be collecting um and you're running you're basically opening your doors every day with a blindfold on if you don't have your fee schedules so i mean they're required by law to provide them to you the problem is most people don't take the time to get them yes it is not easy getting them sometimes but as long as you know what the regs are and you hold the payer accountable absolutely you can get every contract and every fee schedule every single time. We guarantee yeah. our credentialing process. Yeah, you know, a couple of things jumped out at me, you know, from from the statement that you just made um, with respect to, you know, those working in the provider enrollment, the credentialing areas, not using company equipment, using their own personal equipment. I mean, uh, if, if I were a provider, nurse practitioner, PA, uh, CNS, uh, MDDO. And I knew that my information was going on to somebody's personal private computer at home. And there's no telling what kind of security is in place. That would really freak me out from a, an identity theft standpoint, from a security standpoint, from, I mean, I, I wonder how these insurance companies aren't worried about violating HIPAA. Well, first off, um, you know, you're talking about providers and it's their information. So technically you're not violating HIPAA because yes, they're a covered entity or the providers are covered entities, but you're dealing with their personal information. So it's more about, you know, leaking out a social security number, date of birth, uh, place of birth, other personal information yeah. uh, you know we we don't do we don't have anybody working remotely well i shouldn't say that we have people working remotely but they're going through vpns and everything sits on our servers yeah. uh they can't copy it to a usb drive they can't uh save it to their computer um now the other thing is is you know like we even have laptops here where our staff can take things home with them if they need to 
We, I had a staff member that had uh, their spouse have an operation, so she took a laptop into the hospital, uh, did some work while she was there. But again, um, we're in a secure VPN. We've got firewalls on everything. Uh, some of our information is air gap, meaning it's not even attached to the internet. We can only access it from here while we're you know, logged into our computers and our server um, or the, whichever server is air gap. So, I mean, that helps. Yeah. Right. You've got a ton of people working remotely. You have no idea. I mean, there are there's a Facebook group on credentialing and contracting and almost everybody on there works from home, uh, works with their own systems. You've got millions of people out there that have their own credentialing business right out of their house. Um, you know, who knows whether they have any firewalls or any other type of protection. Right. Them certainly don't have encrypted protection in email and things like that. We even, if we're communicating something sensitive, everything goes through our Citrix uh, encryption email, which is 256-bit encryption. So, you know, we do everything we can to protect that information and make sure that, well, so far, knock on wood, 24 years and we haven't been hacked or breached or anything yet. Yeah, you know, it was interesting. Uh, Q4 of 2023, um, I got a notice from somebody saying, hey, we see that you guys just had to pony up a whole bunch of money to uh, the Office for Civil Rights. You guys had a HIPAA breach. And I'm like, wait, what? Well, there's another company out there called the Doctors Management Group. Mm -hmm. And it's very similar to Doctors Management, obviously. It's just theirs is the group. And I went and did some research and found this company. I think they're out of Connecticut or Massachusetts, somewhere in New England. And we had to put something out that said, hey, we realize that some of you have seen doctor's management, but that's a different entity on top of it. But, you know, there's no letting up from OCR. And I, I should have thought before, you know, I'm still coming out of the holiday brain fog before I spoke. I, I, I didn't mean to say hip. I was thinking about the financial, um, the, the, the financial, not, not the red flags, but the ones that are out there that protect financial information. But thanks for thanks for catching that. Um, so look, the, the provider enrollment, as you said, it's, it used to take 90 days or you could say the majority of them took about 90 days. Um, providers are getting really wound up right now because unlike Medicare, who allows you to be retroactive to the date where you actually submitted your application, right? You can go backwards 30 calendar days from the date you submit as long as you follow up with any development letters in a timely basis. The minute they have to reject because you didn't follow up in 30 days, then it starts all over again. Now you have to resubmit with a new effective date. Right. But commercial payers don't allow you to retroactive anything. You're at the mercy of their provider enrollment department and their contracting department before you can actually start to see their beneficiaries and bill for it. But well, example, we got a client that we just, uh, we received the contract last week. Um, they told us providers credentialed, everything's done, set, ready to go. Our effective date, February 1. We'll have to wait another month before we can even schedule to see a patient. It is absolutely ludicrous. We've protested this. 
we said, you've got everything done. What is the issue here? We set the effective date on the contract of 2-1, and we weren't even aware of that. We figured, okay, we signed it. We wait for them to sign it. They signed it. It was signed December, what was it, 30, 29th. It was signed on the 29th, uh, but they placed an effective date of February 1st, 2024. And people wonder why nobody likes these insurance companies. Oh, my gosh. It is. U.S. healthcare is maddening. It is. It is. And we'll get into some of that because, you know, 2024 being an election year, you know, I know we've got a lot of crazy things that are going on out there. But, you know, Obamacare has resurfaced, you know, and even the Democrats. And again, I'm not people think that I'm a staunch Republican because I'm, I'm from the South. And the truth is, I am as far from a right wing and I'm as far from a left wing as you can get. I'm I am literally a centrist. I am in the middle. I am a moderate. I, I, I vote both ways, depending on who I think is the least corrupt at the time when I'm voting. Um, but, you know, the Democrats are, are, are distancing themselves from Obamacare because they're, they're, they're quickly realizing that this was not the health care package that they thought they were signing, signing off on. You know, patients weren't able to see the provider that they wanted to see. You know, the, the, um, the health coverage programs are so lackluster and they're actually costing more than what they were supposed to cost. Yeah. So well, do this. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's, it's so, you know, on top of the economy and dealing with inflation, the crisis at the Southern border, you know, now everything going on with Israel and Palestine and, you know, Iran and the Houthis and all these other wonderful fun things that we have to deal with uh, around the world, healthcare is going to be a major topic of discussion uh, in 2024 because so many people are now going without it again because they can't even afford to be on the exchange. Yeah. Although, you know, the government's touting that they've never had higher enrollment in Medicaid, but Medicaid doesn't do very well for those, for those patients. Uh, Let's face it; it's not paying the. You got less and less providers enrolling in Medicaid, or even the managed care plans. Um, you've got all these prior auth requirements, and Medicare Advantage is the a complete utter joke. Yeah, you know. Listen, I wouldn't brag about Medicaid at all. It's it's a complete dysfunction. But you know, I, I was talking to a a, a a friend of mine who's a senator. And we were talking about the Veterans Administration, and I know we're kind of getting a little off topic, but, you know, one of the big things that they're talking about uh, possibly pushing forward this year as a consideration to at least get it to, to the floor for a vote in Congress is to eliminate the Veterans Administration, the health care under the VA, and put all veterans onto Medicare. But the problem that you run into is Medicare doesn't want to be in the insurance business anymore come 2030, which is why they're forcing everybody to go to these Medicare Advantage plans, which is another whole debacle. Yeah, exactly. And of course, we recommend to our clients, you know, if you're going to go to a Medicare Advantage, then we need to hold the payers accountable that, you know, even Medicare Advantage can be covered by ERISA regulations. And, you know, they're... 
prior us are only allowed based on what the policy allows. The payer cannot dictate which procedures receive prior us. You have to go by what the policy states. And that's all predicted in advance before the policy is signed and issued. So, and that's the challenge. You know, I've been preaching for years, the most important documents you can have in your practice, one, contracts, signed contracts and fee schedules. And number two, you gotta have a copy of the patient's policy or the summary plan description. Nobody has those. Everybody thinks it's impossible to obtain. It isn't. You go to the employer to get them because those are the ERISA plans. And, you know, you can easily get them if you set up a system, uh, you know, a template letter that you have every patient sign. You mail the letter off to the employer. Employer sends you a copy of the policy because they're required to once the patient requests it. So it's very easily done. And it is the best ticket for guaranteeing your success in collecting every dime Do you. And it also ensures no payer can recoup any money on any ERISA claim ever. Yeah. You know, it's, it's maddening to me when I get a phone call and, and, and I send a lot of folks your way. It's maddening to me when somebody calls me and they're like, Hey, you know, we're having a problem with this particular payer. And I say to them, get me your contract. Let's take a look at some of the language in your contract and let's figure out whether or not there's a breach of contract by the payer. And if there is, then we, well, we never got a contract. Well, of course you did. You had to have gotten a contract. Or I have uh, groups that say to me, well, our contract is 10 years old. And I think to myself, how can you know the rules to a game if you don't have the rules? I mean, you know, you, 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 you can't play Monopoly correctly if you don't understand the rules. So how can you play a game of healthcare and expect to be successful with any, any level of success, minimal, moderate, or high, if you don't have a contract? So, you know, when you say, you know, so when somebody says to you, David, listen, we don't have our contracts or our contracts are eight years old or 10 years old. I mean, what's what's the guidance that you provide to them? Well, I let them. So, you know, we're dealing with this a lot right now because we're doing a lot of contract negotiations just on the phone with a client in North Carolina that doesn't have any of their contracts. So I said, well, either you guys need to obtain them along with the fee schedules or you need to ask us to obtain them. We will obtain them without fail, 100 percent guaranteed you have to know how to hold them accountable. So you have two choices, either they get them or we get them, but we can't move forward with negotiations unless we have the current contracts because every contract violates ERISA. Um, you know, I was just talking to a, our good friend, Cindy Walker yesterday, and she's dealing with an ERISA claim where a payer is delaying payment on a lot of, rec on a lot of uh, services because they request medical records, they sent them, and now it's gone past 60 days. Well, if you look, any patient, any human in America can go to the Department of Labor website, find the document that actually communicates about ERISA, because ERISA is a Department of Labor law, it is not a healthcare law. Hence the reason why nobody knows about it. 1974, folks, that's when it was published. 
So uh, when you actually look at the document that's there on the Department of Labor website, which communicates to all U.S. citizens their rights with their health benefit plans, there is a there is a section that I copied from that, sent it to Cindy and showed her for urgent care services. Uh, I believe it's 15 days they have to make a decision on whether they're going to either deny the claim or they're going to pay it. They can't delay it. On post-service, or maybe it's pre-service claims, they've got, I think it's uh, 20 days or something like that. And on post-service, meaning that you submit the claim after you've seen the patient, they've got 30 days to make a decision. They either deny it or they need to pay it. And they can't delay it any further. And if they deny it, they've got to deny it for a good reason. And even denying for medical necessity, you can't do that under ERISA either. So there is almost no reason to deny it unless somebody violated regulations where they didn't document properly, they're billing uh, an improper code. But it all depends on, again, what are they doing? You have to look at the specifics. You have to look at the uh, ERISA regs. And you need to communicate. You're not going to communicate to the payer's claim department. Nobody knows anything there. You communicate to the CEO. You communicate to the employer. You communicate to the patient. You copy them on everything. And you make sure you send it to the EBSA because they control the oversight for Department of Labor and ERISA. And I tr trust me, they go after it. Yeah. They cease and desist right then and there. They know they're violating the law. Yeah, as they should know. And and that's the problem. You have a lot of folks who don't understand what their rights are. They don't understand how, you know, uh, ERISA works, how a lot of these laws actually work that were created to protect them. And, you know, they, they, they just believe, unfortunately, whatever it is that the insurance companies tell them. That's why people like you are so critical you know, to the industry to make sure that we're holding these payers accountable. Now, you brought up something about contracting. And I have a lot of clients that will call me and they'll say, God, you know, my rates are terrible, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I always say to them, well, why, why haven't you gone back to negotiate a higher rate? Well, you, you can't negotiate a higher rate. These insurance companies won't negotiate with you. What say you? Um, well, let me give some proof. I've got an otolaryngology practice in PA that just got an 11% increase from Aetna. We've got a pediatric practice in Bozeman, Montana that just got a 26% increase from uh, Mountain Co-op. We got a, I believe we're going after a 23%. Now, here's a good one. Multi-plan. Ah. 23, they're not even an insurance company. No. Okay. 23% increase to the reimbursement rates. So yes, you can negotiate. You have to do the job properly. It's all about doing your due diligence. We have a, I mean, we've done this 24 years. So you've got to, we built a process where you've got to figure out what leverage you have. So our clients, the providers, the practice administrator, the billing people have to fill out a questionnaire. I need to know everything and ev anything and everything about that practice, what sets it apart from the competition, what they do differently, five different areas, lowering the cost of healthcare, patient access, which is not just about your hours, 
patient satisfaction. If you're not doing patient sat surveys, huge mistake. Your business, you are behind the eight ball because every payer surveys your patients all the time. And they know whether they were happy with their visit, whether they waited too long in your waiting room, um, which should Yeah, be don't call it a waiting room. Um, you know, little things like that. So payers know more about your practice than most providers do. I mean, I talked to I talked to a client the other day, asked them to fill out the questionnaire, and they couldn't tell me who their main competitors were. Um, they said, well, we've got several other people that do the same thing we do, but we don't know much about them. Um, and I wanted to say, really? You haven't mystery shopped them or anything? Um, so um, they just couldn't provide a lot of information. So, you know, we're pulling all those fee schedules. They're doing a massive fee analysis, seeing what every payer pays by CPT code, uh, look at the region. We pull contract data. I mean, 2020, you had the Transparency and Coverage Act, which required all payers to post their machine readable contracted rates on all their websites. Now, validate that data to see whether it's right or not, because there's a data out there that is not accurate. That's right. But, but you, you know, and, and it's business 101, right? It's business 101. You do a SWOT analysis. I mean, you've got to understand your strengths, your weaknesses, your opportunities, and your threats. I mean, as, 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 look, you, you and I have been in business. You know, I've been in business for 30 years, right? You've been doing this just a couple of years more than me. And, you know, you every year I look to see who my competitors are. I look at their websites. I look to see what services they're offering. I look to see, you know, what people are saying about them online. I, I go and I look, you know, especially if I know they have government contracts, I look at their open ratings numbers. You know, I want to see, I want to understand where we may be falling short or where we may be excelling against our competition. Again, you know, I'm a nice guy, but nice guy, being a nice guy doesn't pay the bills. Making sure I understand how to bring money into my organization is what helps to pay the bills. Yeah. So when, so it, it, it drives me nuts when I hear somebody say, well, yeah, there's others that, you know, do similar things to what we do, but we really don't know anything about them. I'm thinking to myself, how can you not know who your competition is? Exactly. So I want to I, I want to move a, into another topic because um, we kind of we hit on this for a moment before we we kind of went live onto the podcast. Um, I've had a few folks call me because there was some confusion for them between what is a PTAN versus an NPI number. Now I know some people may be sitting out there listening to this and rolling their eyes and going what, but here's something, <coughs> and and. I've noticed this because when I first came into the industry 30 years ago, I, I was a, a, a young guy, you know, just trying to figure things out. Right. And now I've become one of the gray hairs who I used to kind of be like, God, man, these gray hairs. I wish they get out of the way. But you know what I'm realizing is that a lot of a, a lot of us that have been around this industry for a lot of years, the Cindy Walkers, the David Zetters, the. Terry Fletcher's that, you know, the, these, these household names in healthcare, um, 
there's fewer and fewer of those people around. And there's more and more young folks that have come into the industry but have not had the mentoring the way that I got it when I came into this industry from the Bob Keens and the Larry Golds and, you know, the uh, Paul Kings of the world and, and, and these types. And we're, we're seeing medical practices struggle more now than they ever have. Simple things like the difference between a PTAN versus an NPI, I, I, I'm shocked at the number of people that have actually reached out to me to ask me, what, what's the difference between a PTAN and an NPI? And first, I'm like, you know, there's something called Google. You can look it up, but they're not the same thing. They're inherently different. Oh, so, absolutely. yeah. So can you kind of give us a PTAN NPI 101 for our listeners? Sure, sure. So federal government, in its infinite wisdom, many years ago came, you know, came out with NPES. National Enumeration Provider Enrollment System. Uh, and they required a, a national provider identifier for all providers so that every payer wasn't issuing their own provider ID, uh, which they still do, but they use it internally. So PTAN is a legacy ID number that Medicare uses to identify a provider. But you, can, you need to know the PTAN because if you call Medicare, they're gonna ask you to validate a PTAN the last five of your tax ID, the NPI, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and that's just so that they know they're talking to the right people and people, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're basically allowed to speak to somebody that can validate that information. Um, Medicare does not give advice ever. So if you ever call Medicare, they're never going to give you advice. And somebody that does wasn't trained properly. So from that standpoint, a PTAN is called, is, that's an acronym for Provider Transaction Access Number. It's just an ID number that the payer, or actually the MAC, issues for each provider. Now, each PTAN is unique to the provider and the organization they work for. Just once you get enrolled with Medicare and you're linked to ABC Medical Group, you have what is called a reassignment PTAN. You do not have a PTAN for that provider just sitting by themselves, unless they are a sole proprietor. Then the PTAN is issued to the provider as a sole proprietor, and there is no employer other than themselves. So every other PTAN is called a reassignment PTAN because it links an employer. Even if you're a subcontractor, it's still considered an employer by Medicare. So that reassignment PTAN is issued for that employer or whoever's paying that provider, which allows the group or the organization that the provider is working for to bill services on their behalf and collect that money. Um, those PTANs are not used on a claim form. There's nowhere to enter it. Although you are identifying the group PTAN on an EDI enrollment form, when you're trying to submit claims through a clearinghouse and to the payers. Um, so that, that way they know what that is. So the, you know, when you're submitting an EDI form to Medicare, it requires that PTAN on there, whatever was issued to you. So you're basically taking the provider enrollment information because that's a department into the MAC, which is a Medicare administrative contractor. 
And there are many of them across the nation that run certain states and territories. And then that PTAN is issued for that provider and that employer. And every time a provider connects to another employer or organization, they're issued another PTAN. So you cannot use the PTAN that a provider has, which a client asked me the other day, hey, this, you know, I'm hiring a PA. This PA already has a PTAN. I said, no, they don't. They have a PTAN for somebody else they worked for. Now we need to enroll them and get them linked to you because now you're in, they're coming to a different state to work. We have to enroll in a different state because enrolling with Medicare is not a federal national program. It is done state by state because those are federal laws. You have all these lines around the states. That's why even an insurance company in each state has to credential state by state. Right. With United Healthcare in Texas, and now you want to work in Oklahoma, you need to get credentialed in Oklahoma. Yeah. And I think COVID kind of messed things up for a lot of folks because there were the waivers that allowed people to work across state lines and you didn't have to get a new PTAN, you didn't have to get recredentialed, you know, and now all of a sudden the public health emergency ends and people are like, what do you mean? I can't I can't work in Oklahoma anymore if I live in Texas. Well, so, ends and yet they leave some of the waivers up for another year. <laughs> right, right. It, it, it's, again, it's maddening. Um, so I, I think that's a great explanation about the PTAN versus the NPI number. And, and, and I hope people who are working in provider enrollment, in the credentialing, in the contracting of their organizations, use this information to help guide them to not make, you know, boneheaded mistakes such as, hey, this PA already has a PTAN. They don't need another one. Yes, they do because it's specific to the employer. Last thing that I want to talk to you about, um, because I don't want, I don't want folks to walk away from today thinking, well, you know, David Zetter and, and Zetter Consulting, they're, they're just a, a a credentialing provider enrollment contracting company. You also get involved a lot with individuals that are going through audits. Um, they've been audited by a commercial insurance company. They've been audited by a Medicare administrative contractor. They've been audited by a UPIC, by a SMERC, by an SIU, OIG, whoever it is. Um, in 2023, for me, you know, the big hit list for me, obviously, were um, ancillary services. Ancillary services were a huge audit target, especially genomic testing, urine drug toxicologies, um, you know, UDTs, UDS. Um, evaluation and management services, not so much, but more really procedures and ancillary services thinking back into 2023 where where did you see the majority of your clients or those who were coming to you for the first time being targeted by an insurance company like what kind of services well um right now we're going through a upic audit uh for i mean you and i discussed this actually just yesterday yeah you pick audit for a licensed clinical social worker that works in a lot of facilities, nursing facilities. And unfortunately, you know, that she's advised 
with incorrect information about patients in the facility when they're under consolidated billing status. Uh, she sees the patient. Now she's getting audited because she submitted a bunch of claims when they were covered under consolidated billing. So that's, you know, we're seeing some of that. A lot of them are a lot of uh, audits or medical record requests to validate diagnosis codes for Medicare Advantage. Yep. Um, massive quantities of requests. Um, and yet they are not allowed to request that many records. Yeah, you're talking about HCC audits. What they're allowed to do. And as long as you know that, you can put a stop to it. I mean, like a client had, what, 240 records over three years. Um, and we pushed back and told them, look, this client is this many providers. You're only allowed this many records every 45 days. That's right. So you send another request with the actual records you want limited to this number, and we're happy to comply. Yep. And then in another 45 days, you can request another same amount of records. Yep. But this is all you're getting. Yeah. And a lot of folks don't recognize that, you know, you have inherent rights under the federal laws that protect you against overburdensome requests or, you know, um, uh, requests that um, create duress, if you will. Um, behavioral health, again, was another area where we have seen a lot of interest um, by the payers, especially the access plans out in Arizona, New Mexico, because there is a tremendous amount, unfortunately, of fraud that was taking place on the Native American um, reservation. So that was another big area. Uh, you know, I, I, I told a lot of folks in 2023 that, you know, we have entered into a new era. It's a new era of overzealous investigations and audits and overaggressive prosecutions. Um, because, you know, there was a hiatus due to the public health emergency. And even though the majority of providers tried to do things correctly, and I say the majority, I'm talking 95% of providers tried to do things the right way. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> but the problem was there was so much inconsistent information that was being released from the payers, from the American Medical Association as a prime example. that. Providers fell behind the eight ball because who do I listen to? Last week, you told me to do it this way. This week, you're telling me to do it this way. Now, what's going to happen next week? So as I explained to people, you know, my, my clients, those who listen to the podcast, you have got to continuously research. You have to be reading on a daily basis, if not daily, at least weekly to understand what is going on? You know, I, I remember when I first started in this industry, and I'm sure you remember, Administar Federal. Administar Federal out of Indianapolis, Indiana, they were probably one of the best uh, carriers that you could work with, right? Because they put out Part B news. Every week they put out a new Part B newsletter that kind of gave you insights as to what modifiers they were looking at, why they were looking at it. They gave you examples and guidance. You don't have that anymore where it used to automatically be sent out hard copy now everything is archived and good luck trying to find the most recent version of it you have to go 20 pages deep on a website but you know what in as part of our our, our final topic of discussion 
you know, what guidance are you providing to your clients to sort of audit proof themselves, if you will? Well, we, get, we can't guarantee that you're not going to get audited, but what are the things that you're advising your clients to do in the event they're audited to mitigate their risk of overpayment? Well, the first thing I always tell them is the minute you get notification of any type of medical chart review, request, audit, whatever the case may be, you need to contact somebody. You never send anything to a payer or a third party without first checking and evaluating the information yourself so you know what they're going to find. Now, if you're a regular practice and you're not a certified auditor or coder, you're not going to be able to audit it and evaluate that. So you probably need to bring in somebody, a third party, you, us, Terry, somebody that's going to review it for you and help you understand, okay, this was done correctly. This was done incorrectly. Um, what, what possibly can we amend per federal regulations doing it properly in order to make sure, you know, if you didn't have a signature on it, you know, everything's electronic nowadays. So you have electronic signatures, but let's just say somebody didn't do something or didn't document something or, you know, your level of service documented didn't support the, the code that you build. I mean, I've got another client being downcoded from fives to fours uh, because they aren't putting enough documentation in their records. So, I mean, that kind of stuff you need, you really should evaluate a sample of those records that they requested, get an idea on what you're looking at, what potentially they're going to find, because What's going to happen is you're going to get audited. They're going to come back. Oh, this was done wrong. You owe us money for that. And now you're going to scramble trying to get somebody caught up in a shorter period of time trying to figure out, okay, are they accurate or not? You don't pay something back just because the insurance company or a third party tells you you owe it. You need to validate it. That's right. Anything. Payers lie, cheat, and steal on a daily basis. That is their job. Healthcare is a game. Payers are there to keep the money. We're there to get the money. We're there to get it legally. Payers are there to keep the money, but, and this may sound sarcastic, sarcastic, they're there doing it illegally because most people that you're communicating with are just reading from a script. That's how they're trained. They don't know the rules. I mean, think about it. You're talking to different people every time you call them. They've got more turnover than a bank or a fast food restaurant. So, yeah. yeah, it's absolutely mind boggling to me the what what these payers are trying to get away with. And I have a feeling many more of them are going to be called to the carpet. I'm actually involved uh, right now. This is the first time um, in a while that I've actually agreed to work with the prosecution going after an insurance company in a key TAM. And I am very much looking forward to it because what transpired was nothing short of criminal. And, you know, I use that term very, you know, loosely uh, because everybody's presumed innocent until found guilty in a court of law by either a jury of your peers or by a judge. But this one, this case is absolutely fascinating from the standpoint of the stupid things people put into writing. Yeah. All and right. Contracts. I mean, yeah. the things they put in there and they violate so many regulations. If you know that information, you can put a stop to it. 
But you know, it's exactly what you're saying. If you don't have the knowledge, if you have ignorance, then you're literally operating with a blindfold on. Absolutely. And you're not going to find yourself in a place where you want to be. Exactly. All right. Well, I couldn't think of another person who I'd rather kick the new year off with on my podcast than you, David. It's, uh, we've been I, friends for, for, uh, a couple of decades now. We've done a lot of work together over the years and I look forward to, uh, continuing our friendship and continuing our working relationship. Um, I do want to say one thing for those of you that are not a member of the NSC HBC, it is an organization that is worth looking into. Um, they, they have a tremendous listserv. People are always engaged on there. People are always willing to help. The education that comes out of this organization is first class education. It's made up of attorneys, uh, consultants, um, uh, CPAs, auditors, coders, people from all walks of healthcare make up this organization. And again, it's the NSC HBC, the National Society of Certified Healthcare Business Consultants. Try saying that five times fast. Yeah, it is a mouthful. It is. It's all like right. And to each and every single... Wait, go ahead. I'm sorry, David. I cut you off. What were you saying? Entering organization, and both of us have, le have learned an awful lot. We wouldn't be where we are without it. No doubt about that. And it's a wonderful organization, and it's one that I think everyone who works in healthcare, irrespective of what your role is, should consider joining this organization because it is it is truly a a family, um, and people genuinely look out for each other in this organization. They care about each other's success. Um, the education programs that are put on twice a year in person are tremendous. Uh, they have a great podcast that comes out each uh, month. Uh, they have, um, just like I said, a tremendous listserv. So again, an organization worth exploring and looking into. If you want more information about it, um, I'll post it into the description of this podcast and you can click the link to check out the organization. I'm also going to provide you a link to my good friend, David Zetter and Zetter Consulting. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns. Feel free to engage with their organization. And to each and every single one of you, I'd like to welcome you to 2024. Welcome you back to the Compliance Guy podcast. It's because of you that in just one short year, we went from a global top 10 podcast to a global top 2% podcast out of more than 3.5 million podcasts that are going on right now. Uh, I can't tell you how much that means to us. We are ever so grateful for that. We look forward to another great year. I'll be back next week with our Monday Coding Compliance Roundtable, and then we will start to kick off our Hashtag Terry Tuesday. So until then, remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care. Thanks, Sean. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. 
Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.